We'll take your Bibles one last time and turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. We'll be looking this morning at that last paragraph in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. If you've been around here for any period of time, uh, you'll know that one of our habits here at Prince is that we give a standing ovation for baptism. And so anytime there's a baptism, there's a number of them in the first service last week, then we immediately stand and we try to erupt in applause. And the reason we do that is because it's actually a biblical conviction for us. And it comes from Luke 15. In Luke 15, it tells us that the Pharisees were angry with Jesus because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. It didn't make sense to them how Jesus could claim to be from God and yet spend this much time with those who are not God's people. And so in response to that, Jesus tells three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And all three of them have the same three elements. There's something lost, there's something found, and then there's a big party. In every single story, there's a big party. So the sheep is found, uh, the shepherd carries it home, he invites his friends, they throw a huge celebration. The coin is found, the lady calls all of her friends and invites them, and they all come and they celebrate and rejoice. And so it is when the prodigal son comes home, the father runs to welcome him and puts new clothes upon him and a ring upon his finger and kills the fatted calf. And it tells us there's music and there's dancing and everyone is celebrating because that which was lost has been found. And at the end of the first two stories, it says the same thing. It says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. In other words, in heaven, when someone repents, there's rejoicing. And it just seems to me that the culture of heaven should be the culture of church. Amen? That what is happening in heaven should be reflected to some small degree in every way by what happens in this place when we gather. Just imagine if you visited a church where they booed baptism. You walked into a church one day and uh, the worship pastor says, now let's turn our attention to the baptistry as we continue to worship. And as soon as someone comes out, uh, the entire audience just starts heckling. And they're like throwing used communion cups, you know. Their fruits coming out and kids' snacks and goldfish are going. And they're saying, turn off the hot water, make it cold, you know, whatever. They're just like heckling the baptism. Now, if you were in a room where that was happening, uh, I would imagine you wouldn't visit that church again. But even more than that, I think you would think to yourself, there's something deeply wrong with these people. And that'd just be a really clear indication that there's something wrong. Something in their heart is not right. And as ridiculous as that sounds and how we can't imagine a context in which that would ever happen, it's exactly what Jonah's doing in Jonah 4. He's booing baptism. He's angry because he believes that in, in just a few days, God is not going to pour out his wrath upon the people of Nineveh. And Jonah longs for God to pour out his wrath on the people of Nineveh. And you know the story. We've been in it for a number of weeks now. But God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. He ran 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. God, in some very creative ways, got his attention. And then as he was vomited up from the belly of a great fish, God called him again with the exact same call. This time, reluctantly, he went. He preached. People responded and appeared that God was going to save them. And look at the text that we looked at last week at the beginning of Jonah 4. It says this, but this, it, what? Well, God sparing Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly. It means that he was exceedingly angry. 
and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you are a gracious, uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be this angry? And what you have here is whatever was in the heart of the religious leaders in Luke 15 is what's still in the heart of, of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. Whatever it is, that lack of mercy, that hatred for those who are in need, that inability to display the mercy that has been experienced personally, whatever that is, seems to be in Jonah's heart and seems to be in the religious leader's heart. And what is always a fear to me is that if that was a problem in Jonah's day and Jonah being a representative of the nation of Israel, and if that was a problem in Jesus's day, it just seems that it might be a problem in our day. And it could be that in the same way, God's people in Jonah's day drifted towards that kind of lack of mercy and the people in Jesus's day drifted towards that lack of mercy that we too as a church, if we're not careful, might drift towards the same thing. And so the question I want to ask when I come to this text is, why does that happen? I mean, how is it that those who have experienced so much mercy, I mean, think of the people of Israel and their journey and mercy after mercy after their grumbling and their complaining and their anger and their resentment and their disobedience would have a hard time showing mercy. How could they not be completely overwhelmed by how much had been given to them and then long to display it to others, but for some reason they had completely missed it? And the same in Jesus' day, having even more history to look back on, to see the way in which God had given mercy. These Old Testament scholars who knew the mercy of God on his people, yet could not find a way to display the mercy of God. And we need to ask the question, why? Because we don't want that to happen to us. And the reason that Jonah 4 exists, at the end of what would have been a really neat little tied up story at the end of Jonah 3 ends not with Jonah 3, but with Jonah 4, because it wants to answer the question of why. Why is it that the people of God who have received so much mercy tend to not give that same amount of mercy? Last week, we saw that there are really two enemies to mercy, and there's two paragraphs in Jonah 4, and the first paragraph shows that the first enemy of mercy, this is last week, is idolatry. That Jonah had an idolatrous heart. That there were things that Jonah loved more than he loved God. And what it was for Jonah was his nation and his own identity tied to his position in that nation. You see, Jonah was so committed to the safety and protection of his nation, he would have rather seen an entire city and other nation destroyed because he felt that nation was a threat to his own. He was a nationalist and God is not. God is not tied to the protection of any nation. God is building his own kingdom made up of every nation, tongue, and tribe. But Jonah could not handle that. And his thought that what happened in Nineveh might affect his nation, he just longed for them to be destroyed, and he had this idolatrous heart. He didn't see it in his own self, but God was using chapter 4 to expose it in him. But there is another enemy of mercy, and it's the one that we'll see today in that last paragraph. Not only the enemy of idolatry, but the last one is the, the enemy of self-righteousness. The point of the very ending of the book of Jonah is that Jonah has a self-righteous heart. I spent a lot of time this week trying to come up with a clear, articulate definition of, of self-righteousness. And here's what I've got. And I want to encourage you to write this down. 
Self-righteousness is a feeling of moral superiority that flows from religious pride. It's a feeling of moral superiority. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. But it always flows from religious pride. In other words, because of the things that I've done and because of my righteous actions, I have elevated myself to a position where now the only way for me to look at anyone else is to look down on them. So I've elevated myself and now I have a position of moral superiority. And the best example we have of that is the one that we've mentioned almost every week in our study of Jonah because it's so perfect, is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Where the Pharisee walks into the temple and he sees a tax collector over there, he won't come close because he's so ashamed of his sin. He's just begging God for mercy and the Pharisee walks in and says, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like other men, an extortioner and unjust and an idolater, an adulterer. I fast twice a week and I give tithes and I'm, I'm really so glad I'm not like that tax collector. That's self-righteousness. That's a feeling of moral superiority. He looks at the tax collector and is confident that he's better than him. And the reason he thinks he's better than him is because his religious activity, his religious duty has made him elevate himself to a position in which he is looking down on everyone that's not like him. To be honest with you, all of us, listen to this, all of us drift towards self-righteousness. It's just in our hearts. I feel it. On those occasions when at home, I do like two really helpful things. I go home and I, maybe I help with the dishes and then I do one other helpful thing. I, I, I pick something up and then all of a sudden I just am pretty confident I'm husband of the year. <laughs> and then in my mind, I'm thinking, I bet, I bet Ryan didn't go home and do that, you know. <laughs> I think to myself, Andrea is so lucky. She's so blessed to have a husband like me. That feeling lasts for about 20 seconds. Then I'm reminded that I'm actually not that great at all. And the two things I did were countered by 800 things Andrea did while I wasn't watching. But we always drift towards this. We, we always want something to make us feel good about ourselves. And in so doing, to kind of puff ourselves up a little bit. And we saw it in Jonah 2. In Jonah 2, Jonah is rejoicing because God has saved him. But yet in his prayer... He prays against the idolatrous sailors who are missing out on the steadfast love of God without ever recognizing the idolatry in his own heart. He's so steeped in his own self-righteousness, he can't see his own sin. And it's caused him to view every single other person as inferior to him. And this self-righteousness manifests itself in a, a thousand ways in our lives. Matter of fact, I was just reading through uh, the end of chapter 4 and just thinking about all the ways in which self-righteousness manifests itself. Things like this. A disdain for others. Some hatred for any other group of people. Some hatred for a nation of people, whether it might be in your heart, uh, some with a certain political agenda or a nation that you think is undeserving of the mercies of God. Muslim nations. Maybe it's the people of, of Russia. Maybe it's homosexuals. Maybe it's Democrats, maybe it's Republicans, maybe it's those who are woke. I don't even know what that means, but everybody says it. It's manifested in disdain for others. It's manifested in a lack of compassion, a lack of feeling for those who are less fortunate, a lack of brokenheartedness, in no sacrificial love. It's seen in those who always prefer rules over relationships. 
in a lack of joy, a victim mentality, that things are always worse for me, or a sense of entitlement. It's seen in our overreaction and our oversensitivity, always overly sensitive to the things that are happening to us. The things that are happening to us are worse than what's happening to everybody else. And it's seen in what my girls at my house would call being judgy. That's self-righteousness. Being judgy is self-righteous. It is somehow feeling that I'm morally superior to someone else. And it is in every single part of Jonah's heart. And God wants to expose it in him because he's gracious and he wants him to be healed. And so let's walk through the text and see how he does that. Look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now we don't know exactly why this happened. We have a little clue in chapter 3. It says that uh, the city of Nineveh was a three days journey. But it says that Jonah only went a day's journey in it. So what it seems is that Jonah reluctantly was obeying God because he didn't want to go through what he went through in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But... He didn't go very far into Nineveh. He just went far enough to get the job done and he preached this really pitiful sermon and then he went back out, which means at that point, he's got about 38 days left to watch and see what God is gonna do. And his hope is that he might watch exactly what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants to see the fiery wrath of God consume the entire city. And so he goes outside, he sits on a hill and he makes a booth because he plans to be there for a while and he's just watching And we know that because it says he wanted to know at the end of verse 5 what would become of the city. He wants to see if God is actually going to relent of his anger. It feels like Jonah has gone and got a good spot for a fireworks show. And he's just waiting to see exactly what would happen. And he made shade and he's comfortable there just sitting. Look what happens in verse 6 as God begins to kind of mess with him a little bit. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant. And he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head. And this is an important phrase, to save him from his discomfort. And so God appointed a plant in the same way that God appointed a fish. And so we see the sovereignty of God in every part of Jonah's life. And particularly in this instance, God is doing something in Jonah's life. And it begins with the appointing of this plant. Now, it's important to see the phrase to save him from his discomfort because this was not a matter of life and death. He already had a booth. And so this was just an unnecessary but gracious gift of God, like a thousand things in our life. Like a thousand things in our life are unnecessary, gracious gifts of God. We don't have to have them to live, but yet God continues to give them to us. Why? Because he's a good and gracious and kind God. It would be like being outside working all day on a a hot day, and then right when you get done, someone brings you a cold glass of, of iced tea. It's not necessary, but it sure is refreshing. I mean, you could drink out of the hose, but at the same time, a glass of iced tea sure is nice at that moment. It's just refreshing, and it feels as if what God is doing for Jonah this moment is giving him a glass of iced tea. Jonah, you don't have to have this, and it's not necessary, and I didn't need to give you anything, but I just want you to be refreshed. I don't want you to be uncomfortable, Jonah. I would like for you to be uh, delivered from any discomfort you might have. And so the Lord really in this moment is pampering Jonah, which, by the way, he does with us. He treats us with so much kindness and and so much grace and gives us a thousand things we don't deserve. And that's exactly what he's doing here. It had nothing to do with his eternity. It was just God being kind. And look at how Jonah responded at the end of verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now that word exceedingly should kind of strike a chord in your mind because we read it in chapter 4 verse 1. 
In verse one, it says that he was exceedingly angry. It's the exact same phrase used in the end of chapter three, where it talks about the fierce anger of God that was going to be poured out upon Nineveh if they did not repent. And now at the end of chapter three, the Lord has, has relented from his anger and now Jonah has it. It's a phrase that means he was burning with anger. He was consumed with anger. And if you have a problem with anger, I want to encourage you to listen to last week's sermon because we looked at the fact that anger is always like a warning light in our car. It is exposing a deeper problem inside of our heart. And when we have anger, God wants us to see that there's something behind that and we should ignore the anger. And we also shouldn't just try to fix the anger because it's pointing to a deeper problem. And so Jonah is just consumed with anger, so much anger at the end of that text in verse four, he wants to die, but now that exceeding anger has been replaced with an exceeding joy. So I want you to see like the emotional roller coaster of Jonah. He's so angry that he wants to die, he's consumed and burning, and now he's just overwhelmingly happy. Like he's never been this happy. He could not be this more excited about anything in the world because he's got a plant and he's comfortable. There's no discomfort in his life. And he's just, he's just so happy at the end of verse six. So God decides to mess with him again. Look at verse seven. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's the word again, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Have you ever felt like God was messing with you? Ever felt that way? Like, it's just like, okay, that thing, and, and now that thing, and now that, but wait a minute, Lord. There's a number of things here that just don't seem to be coincidence. Let me just tell you something. God is never messing with you because he loves to do that. If God is appointing things in your life, he is doing it because he desires to graciously expose you like he's doing with Jonah. Because he sees something unhealthy in your heart, and his desire is to expose it so that he might lead you into greater intimacy with him. That's always the goal. Always the goal is that God is pursuing us and God is sovereign over everything in your life. He is sovereignly orchestrating everything because he's pursuing your heart. There is a good and a kind God between ev uh, before every single thing that happens in our life. And so it is here is God and it seems, God, why are you messing with Jonah? He says, I'm not. I'm pursuing Jonah's heart. And so he points a worm and it attacks the plant and it withers. And then verse eight, it gets a little worse. God appointed one more thing. And then when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on his head to Jonah so that he was, and this is an important word, he was faint. Now that's important because it's still not a matter of life and death. Jonah's still got a booth. Let's remember that. And so he can still go under the booth to get comforted. He was just really enjoying sitting outside with his iced tea uh, under this tree. That was better than the booth. It just felt better. He had a different view there. And all of a sudden now, he's just feeling faint, right? He just, he might faint. Now, I was being a little critical of Jonah, and then I had a thought, maybe Jonah was bald. <laughs> and speaking of self-righteousness, some of you with a great head of hair, you don't understand what it's like, and you're all condescending to everybody else, like somehow you made that head of hair. I mean, unless you paid for it. I don't know. I'm just saying... I was at Veterans Park yesterday at, at two soccer games, and it's a legit thing when you look like this and you're sitting out there in the sun all day. That's real. And I'm not having an umbrella over me. Come on, man. I can't do that. <laughs> so, so maybe it's legit. Maybe Jonah's really suffering. The wind and the, and the sun is hard. And you say, well, how bad was it for him? Well, well, look at how he's feeling. Remember, he's been exceedingly angry, and now he's exceedingly glad. Look at the end of verse 8. He was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. 
Now, this is the third time Jonah asked to die. He wanted to die in chapter one. He would rather die than acknowledge that he had done something wrong or repent of his sins. So he says, just throw me over. He won't even throw himself over. Just throw me over. He wanted to be able to die and blame it on them. Still self-righteous. He wanted to die at the beginning of chapter four. When he said, how angry are you? I'm angry enough to die. He says that. I'd rather die. Just take my life. And so the Lord poses another question in verse nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So here's, here's what God is asking Jonah. Jonah, here's your anger and here's the circumstance. Do you think the amount of anger is, is really right for the circumstance? Is there a little imbalance here? Have you, have you ever had someone respond that way where you said, here's the situation and here's your response. I'm not sure your response is adequate for the situation. Seems like you might be over responding just a little bit. And God had already posed that question to him before, and now he says it again. Jonah, I am not confident that this anger is justified, that this is holy and righteous anger like God's wrath was at the end of chapter 3. Jonah, are you right to be so angry for the, for the plant? And look at Jonah's response at the end of verse 9. He said, yes, I've thought about it, and it's justified for me to be this angry about the death of my plant. I do well to be this angry. He doubles down. Here it is. Angry enough to die. Now, we might have thought that in chapter 2 is when Jonah hit rock bottom. He had sunk all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And God, in his grace, sent a fish to spare him. But I'm pretty sure this is rock bottom. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the worst moment of Jonah's life up to this point is the moment in which he thought about it and contemplated it and realized that it is true. His anger is justified. He's lost his plant. And he would rather die than live one more moment without his comfortable shade plant. He's thought about it. Yeah, I'm angry and I'm justified in my anger. Angry enough to die. There's Jonah's last words. Now, in the last few months, as we've walked through this book, I've gone through a number of emotions towards Jonah. I've been irritated with him. I've been frustrated with him. I've been confused at him. But at this point, honestly, I just feel sad for him. There's something really wrong in his heart. There's something really unhealthy here. There's something broken. In the same way, if you were to go to a, a place that booed baptism, you would say, there's something not right here. There's just something deeply broken in Jonah's heart. And the grace that God is extending right here is through the plant. He's going to expose what's wrong in Jonah's heart. And if you notice that every single time we see an interaction between God and Jonah, God's response is perfect. It's kind, it's measured, it's gentle, and it is always an invitation to something else. There's never anything really judgmental that comes from the heart of God here. God is just graciously and patiently leading at Jonah's heart. And so look at God's last words, because God gets the last words in verses 10 and 11. And the key word before we read it, and I want you to circle it there, is the word pity. It's used twice. The word pity means to be brought to tears. It's a word that really means tears in your eyes. It means to be so brokenhearted over something that you cannot help but weep. Have you been there? Over the suffering of someone else? Have you ever seen someone suffering? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a good friend, and their suffering has been so intense that it really brings you to tears. It breaks your heart to see what they're going through. 
the exact same thing that Jesus experienced in Matthew 9 when it says he saw the multitudes, the sheep without a shepherd. They were vulnerable. They were needy. They were in danger. And when Jesus saw the people who did not have a shepherd, it said that Jesus' heart broke. He felt compassion. He was brought to tears by the suffering of those whom he'd created for his glory. And so Jesus is feeling the depth of the suffering of those that he sees, and it's exactly the word that he uses here when he says pity. And it's exactly the feeling, listen, Jonah felt about his plant. So Jonah felt about his plant. He was broken over his plant. He was weeping over his plant. He was brought to tears over his plant. He was so hurt by the, by the loss of his plant that he was broken to the point of even wanting to die. Didn't he didn't want to live anymore. He had this complete utter, deep, emotional reaction, a depth of brokenheartedness and sorrow over the loss of his plant. And so the Lord says, you pity the plant. You feel that way over the plant. Verse 10, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. You didn't plant this. You didn't make it grow. You had nothing to do with it. It lasted for 24 hours and you are completely broken because you've lost it. And look at verse 11. So should I not feel that way over Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? Those whom I have created? Those whom I created for my glory to, to know me and, and to love me? Look what it says. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? So we have one plant compared to 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand to their left. He's not calling them ignorant. He's saying the fact that they don't know right from wrong. They, they, they don't understand the grace and the mercy of God. They're just wandering in their blindness. They don't even know what's right. And so when I look at a generation of people like these sheep without a shepherd, should I not be broken over their suffering? Should I not be broken over their evil? Should I not be broken hearted over 120,000 people that are going to spend eternity in hell if they don't repent? Should I not feel that way about them? Should I not have tears in my eyes over them? And then we wonder why the book of Jonah ends with the phrase, and not much cattle. It seems a little anticlimactic, but the reason is because the Lord is saying, listen, you're pitying a plant, but you don't even pity the cattle. The reality is that even, even they matter to me, matter more than this plant. They matter to me. I've created them, and so it is that in my compassionate heart. I'm longing to, to see this entire city saved. What he's saying to Jonah is this, Jonah, the way you feel about that plan and the comfort that you received from it and the shade that you enjoyed is the same brokenheartedness I feel over the people of Nineveh who would perish and spend eternity in hell if it wasn't for my mercy. And then that's it. Like in my Bible, it's right at the end of the page there, and I'm, I'm hoping there's more, so I turn, and it's Micah. It's like, oh, that's no help. That's it, just a question, no resolution, just a question hanging out there. And the ending of this story might remind you of the ending of another story, which was the last story in Luke 15. You see, all three stories, the, the sheep, the coin, and the son, all went the exact same way. Something lost, something found, and a big party. But the last story adds one more little part. And it is with that last part that God was speaking directly to the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders of his day. 
Listen to what it says in that last part of Luke 15. The prodigal son had, had come home. He was convinced that he would get a lecture from the father, but in the same way Jonah didn't get one from God, the prodigal son didn't get one, the father ran to him, saw him far off, and this is the heart of God towards you. Listen, this is the heart of God. If you turn towards him, he runs towards you, and he doesn't give you what you deserve. He clothes you in righteousness. He puts a signet ring on your hand to say that you are his son, and you are his child, and he loves you. You are his beloved, and so it is. The father does this, and then listen to what it says at the end of Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. Sound familiar? And he refused to go in. The older brother refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not his brother, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? You see, what happened is while the younger brother was out disgracing the family and wasting the family's money, the older brother was home growing in self-righteousness. Not pity for his brother, not praying for his brother, not compassionate for his brother, but the longer he stayed home, the more he began to feel how great of a son he was because he had never done what his, what his younger brother had done. Look at the father's response. And he said to him, son, you're you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive and he was lost and is found. And just like the story of Jonah, it ends with no resolution. We don't know what happened to Jonah. We don't know what happened to the older brother. All we know is this, both of them steeped in their self-righteousness we're outside of the joy of the Lord, outside from the heart of God, and we're missing what God was inviting them into, but yet God continued to say, you're welcome to come in, but you must embrace my heart. And the reason there's no resolution is because the stories are not ultimately about Jonah, and the stories are not ultimately about the prodigal son and his older brother. The story is ultimately about us. That's why there's no resolution, because the question at the end is, well, what about us? How are we going to respond? It's very appropriate, look back at the end of Jonah 4, that the book of Jonah ends with a question mark. Because in Jonah's day, it was a question for the people of Israel. And in Jesus' day, it was a question for the older brothers, self-righteous Pharisees. And in our day, it's a question for us. Because the reality is, is it does pose for us some questions. And we might think, well, I'm not Jonah. And I don't heckle baptisms. And I'm not angry with people experiencing mercy, but the more you begin to evaluate our hearts, the more we might begin to realize that there is some of this inside of us. And so we're asked the question, are, are we going to extend mercy to others in the same way God has extended to us? Because God gives new mercies every morning. Will we continue to give mercy upon mercy upon mercy? Listen to this one. Will we get as emotional about the lost who are perishing and going to hell as we get emotional about a thousand other lesser things in our life? We rejoice over a thousand things. We get happy over all kinds of things. We get angry over all kinds of things. But do we get angry with injustice that we see in the world? And do we get happy over seeing people come to Christ? Our heart is broken over a thousand lesser things. And the question of Jonah is, will it be broken for what breaks God's heart? 
Will we gather in worship and enjoy the music and celebrate in what God is doing and yet somehow walk out of this place and fail to extend the same mercy we have received? Will we allow our church activity and our faithfulness to puff us up and to give us a sense of religious pride where all of a sudden we see one other group of people and somehow, maybe even surprising to us, see them as somehow lesser of value than we are, less deserving of the mercy of God. Or instead of that, will we, through seeing Jesus Christ and beholding him and seeing him in the gospel, understand the depth of our own depravity and how time after time after time, again, we have ignored God, we have run from God, we have shaken our puny fist in the hand of God and said, we don't want your way. And yet time and time again, there's mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy. Will we see ourselves as we really are and see Christ as he really is and recognize that the only thing that separates you from any group of people you don't like is the mercy of God? Someone asked me this week, why did you choose Jonah right now? And let me tell you why. It's because only by the grace of God, I sense what God is doing in our church. And you do too. These are incredible times. We are seeing so much growth and, and so much joy and so much excitement. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about all the other things we believe that God is doing in our church. This is an incredible time. But my fear is in the midst of all the good things that God is doing here, we might drift towards self-righteousness. We might somehow come here and rejoice and be excited and, and raise our hands and leave here and fail to extend the same kind of mercy that we experienced in this room this morning. That's my fear. And I fear it because I see it in my heart and I fear how easy it is. I see it all the time in my own heart, how easy it is to get new mercy every morning and fail to extend it to someone else. Every generation of God's people have seemed to drift towards self-righteousness. And I'm just gonna ask you this morning that you would pray that that wouldn't be us, that you would pray that it wouldn't be you, that if you see it in your own heart, that you would repent of it and you would ask God to heal you. If there is anything that seems unhealthy in your heart, that you would ask God to heal it for, for your good. And that we as a church might be a church that presses in to extending the mercy of God, not because we have some program that does it, but because every single one of us leave here so overwhelmed by his mercy that every single person we meet gets to see it through us. That's the goal. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.